So today, our passage is going to come in Luke 11, and we're actually going to be in verses 37 through 44. We're not going to make it all the way to 54 today, so we're going to go Luke 7, Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 44. I'll bring the text up on the screen. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. You can find our passage on page 870 in the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, and so he went in and reclined at table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Thus ends the reading of God's word. So the church, uh, our church, is a product of this little thing we like to call the Reformation. But why is the Reformation called the Reformation? Why is it not called the Great Schism, as well Roman Catholics like to call it that? So uh, why is it not called the Great Rebellion or the Great, you know, something else? It's called the Reformation. Well, this is because, at the very best, uh, the Reformation was, was about a recovery of true religion because the truth of Christianity, and especially the gospel, had become obscured, covered up, and in doing so, lost. It was locked away behind the priesthood and behind corruption in the church, behind a separation of the people from the Word of God itself. And we rightly celebrate the uh, this reform, this grand reform to the church, the Reformation and its fruits. Yet we have to, we must beware, though, that that we don't end up in a similar position in some kind of reformed version of of what the Catholic Church was, uh, the place where the Catholic Church was at in the fifteen hundreds uh, and the fourteen hundreds when the Reformation began. And what is the purpose of learning the Bible? And what's in it? What is the purpose of learning theology? The purpose is worship. Biblical and joyful worship that is born of gospel grace that spreads from our hearts to our mouths to our, to our actions and out into the world. But in a world of sin, we are always in danger of compromising and obscuring the faith for the benefit of the flesh. And Jesus, in this fiery rebuke of the religious leaders of of his day, 
gives us, uh, gives us a warning that we must heed if we truly desire to love God and truly desire to enjoy Him forever. And so we're going to look at the rebuke of the Pharisees today, and then next week we're going to look at the rebuke that He gives to the lawyers. But today Jesus gives us a dire warning primarily against external religion, against external religion. But uh, before uh, we get there, um, and to, uh, before we get there, and I just realized I don't have slides for you today, so I'm sorry. I don't know why I just completely lost it on that one. So, but before we get there, you've got the outlines in the, on, on the bulletin there. But before we get there, we need to talk about who are the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? Uh, because he's always dealing with the Pharisees, and we feel like we know who the Pharisees are, right? Uh, and, but what, what, are the me- what is the meaning of the word Pharisee? We tend to look at the Pharisees kind of like they're the cartoonishly evil bad guys, right? That's, that's who the Pharisees are. But that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't get it, actually. The name Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word that means to separate or interpret. And the Pharisees were very much interested in both of those things. And so they were a group that arose during the, uh, a Jewish revolt that occurred uh, after the end of the Old Testament, before the beginning of the New Testament, during what's called the, the period called the, the Maccabean Revolt. And so the, the Pharisees essentially arose uh, around that time. It's, they can't really pinpoint exactly when. Uh, but the Pharisees believed that the word of God had been given to all of Israel and, and that anyone in, the, in Israel could interpret it if they, as long as they did so rightly. And, they, and, and, uh, and further, since Israel was not a nation and they were under pagan rule, it was all the more critical to maintain their connection to God through obedience to his commands in his word especially if the Jews ever hoped to have a restoration of the nation of Israel. And so the Pharisees, now the Pharisees were not professionally trained scholars. Those were the scribes and the lawyers that we'll talk about next week. They were normally men of moderate to significant means. They were landowners, shopkeepers, and the like. Uh, they were, and they were concerned uh, for the Jewish people to live faithfully according to the commands of God. And, and the time, at the time, the Pharisees were the largest and most influential Jewish uh, religious group. But also, we, and so that's who the Pharisees are, but what, what is it that they really care about? And, and kind of where does, where, where does it go wrong? Why does Jesus go after them? Well, their chief priority was the accurate interpretation of the scriptures, of the, what we would call the Old Testament, and obedience to the tradition that had arisen over the years that surrounded that interpretation. And so there was a collection of writings and, uh, that, that called the Mishnah and all these, basically all the teaching of the rabbis that were collected together. And, and this is all collected together. It's got all these ways of, of keeping the commands of God uh, through these extra commands. And these things were called in the New Testament the tradition of the elders. That's how it's referred to even outside of the Old Testament. That's how the Jews referred to it. And, and so this tradition was essentially the application 
of the law to the current moment. It's like taking the fourth commandment about keeping the Sabbath, and they would say, okay, well, you need to keep the Sabbath by, and they would just give you all these boxes to tick. Make sure you don't do these things. Make sure you do these things. And just and, and they gave you all the rules. And it was a long list of rules. Now, now, we can see, you know, in my description of the Pharisees initially, you can see some of the appeal there. I mean, these are guys that you wouldn't mind necessarily having as your neighbors. Maybe they're a little judgy, but they keep their lawns nice, right? You're not going to find a rusted out vehicle in the front yard or, you know, doing all kinds of things. They're going to keep it prim and proper, right? Uh, if these guys were considered with knowing, understanding, teaching, and above all, obeying God's word. So again, so where did they go wrong? Well, one of the major problems is, is that, in, is that they believe that the way they applied the, the Scriptures had the same divine authority as the Scriptures themselves. And so they kind of, they put, they put this, since they didn't want to disobey the commands of God and they wanted to obey them, they built this hedge of rules around it to make sure that we, they wouldn't break, uh, break God's law. But in time, that hedge became more important than the law itself. And so they elevated the tradition of the elders to the same status, and then even at times to a greater status than the Word of God. And and by focusing so much on the traditions of the rabbis, on the teaching of the elders, they ended up losing the truth of the Word of God itself. And further, many of the Pharisees, um, uh, you know, the you know, for them, obeying the traditions of the elders was the way, the chief way of raising up your status amongst the Jewish community. And so their desire was not to honor God or to obey him. Their desire was to show off to everybody how holy they were, to essentially fake it in front of everybody. And so that gives you a bit of a background with who Jesus is dealing with, uh, with the Pharisees. And that these are uh, basically religious leaders in Judaism at the time who had strong local influence, who were obsessed with keeping the traditions of men more than the scriptures themselves. And so Jesus starts with the Pharisees uh, in teaching us uh, that God looks at the heart in verses 37 to 41. God looks to the heart. And this all begins by a surprising omission. Uh, a Pharisee invites Jesus uh, to eat at his, at his home, which likely would have followed the morning prayer time. The Jews normally had two major meals uh, throughout the day. They may have a very small meal, kind of private meal, at, right, right before prayer. But after prayer, there was usually a big meal in, in mid-morning, and then there was a big meal later in the day. And so this probably would have been the earlier meal. And, and now these meals would have spectators, all right, so this was entertainment and education, and so they would have, you would have people standing around while people are eating, and Jesus is there, and they would be asking the rabbi, who's the kind of the guest of honor, questions, and you use it as teaching, and, and so there's, you know, there's going to be spectators there, and bef- but before they even get to the meal, the Pharisee who invited Jesus into his home is astonished by what Jesus doesn't do. And by astonished, I mean grossly offended by the fact that Jesus is not keeping the tradition of the elders 
by engaging with the ritual washing of hands. Because this is not a, a cleanliness thing, right? This is not a bacteria, he's a germaphobe, or he just, you know, just you, you wash your hands before dinner type of thing. This was a non-biblical tradition uh, where a Jewish man would come in and he would essentially cleanse himself of the actual or potential defilement that he had, uh, that he had um, taken on by interacting with the outside world, particularly with Gentiles and sinners. And this was no joke. The Jewish tradition that is compiled in the Mishnah stipulated how much water you could use and the manner that it was to be applied to your hands. They had rules on exactly how this was done. And this was all part of a larger, larger complex uh, ritual of washing basically everything. They did ritual washings on all the stuff, on their bodies, on their dishes, on all the things. And here's Jesus, who has just cast out a demon and interacted with who knows what else. And here he comes in, and he doesn't follow the tradition of the elders, which is supposed to be just as authoritative as the Torah. Who does this guy think he is? What is he doing? And, and Jesus knows what's going on, and so he delivers a stinging rebuke to the Pharisee and to the Pharisees that are present. Jesus either knows the man's thoughts or he sees this man's look of disgust, as, and, and, and so he decides to let the Pharisees have it. And so, number one, be careful if you invite Jesus over for dinner, right? Jesus is not afraid to go after his host. And so Jesus accuses the Pharisees of hypocrisy, comparing the ritual washings to essentially washing the outside of the cup, but never washing the inside of a cup. He tells his host and others that their cleansing is only skin deep, that what is inside them, their outside may be clean, but what is inside of them is actually defiled. Now, the Pharisees certainly didn't believe they were greedy. I don't think greedy people actually believe they're greedy. They think they normally just believe they're practical. But, uh, but, uh, but they, and Pharisees certainly didn't think they were wicked on the inside. But they, that's because they had found ways to code their greed, to code their wickedness in religious terms. That they, were, they found a way to clothe the passions of the flesh with righteous language of purity. But Jesus, who is Lord, knows their thoughts, and he does know what is on the inside. And so he tells them that, that rather than being so concerned with looking clean on the outside, they should actually be concerned with what's going on inside their own hearts. Why? Because God made the body and the soul. He made the outside of a person and the inside of a person. And as he makes clear, to think that being pure is only external, well then that is to be a fool. A fool is one who lacks prudence or good judgment. And again, that's the last thing the Pharisees thought they were. Rather than cleanse the outside with no concern what is within, Jesus says to give from that which is inside. And so he talks about giving alms or almsgiving, which was essentially, the, in Judaism, it was the expression of compassion for the needy. 
Augustine from the fourth century wrote that that it, that almsgiving is the act uh, is 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 any act that flows uh, to do that flows from the person to do what is whatever is needful for the needy. That it is it is that which comes out of us uh, from an internal generosity and righteousness that comes only through repentance and faith in Jesus. And so that Jesus isn't saying, you know, make yourself clean by giving money to people, to poor people. He's not saying that. This isn't works righteousness. This is Jesus warning us that we need to steer clear of a religious externalism that only focuses on that which is outside of us. This is Jesus saying that if we really want to be pure, then we need clean hearts. And this is a warning we need to heed. Because, as he goes on in verses 42 to 44, purely external purity defiles everybody. Purely external purity defiles everybody. Jesus, in these three verses, lays out three woes, three sorrows of judgment for religious hypocrisy. And he rebukes the Pharisees here for three things. He rebukes them for focusing on minor things and neglecting the major things. He rebukes them for being concerned with their social status. Truly, they're just filling their pride. And he rebukes them ultimately for misleading the people of God, whom they were responsible to lead. And so he, we're going to look at each. Uh, and so first, in verse 42, we see that Jesus says that they are. he rebukes them for focusing on the wrong things. He says they neglect justice and the love of God in how they act and interact with others. And in its place, they focus on being faithful to what we can call a hyper-scrupulous tithing program. Uh, you know, Jews were commanded to tithe to support the priesthood, Levites, uh, for, to support temple worship, and to tithe to care for the poor. The, the teaching of the rabbis actually had it broke down into 12 different tithes. So it's like if you have an issue with like doing a tithe or something like that or giving to the church, imagine being Jewish. You have 12 different tithes that you're responsible to be meeting. And, to, and so now one of the things you did not have to tithe on was your spice rack. Okay? But the Pharisees went out of their way to show that we even tithe on our mint and our dill and we tithe on the very smallest things that we're not even required to tithe on because if we tithe on that then how holy must we be right and Jesus says you can be that exacting on your tithes yet you miss loving God and doing justice How is that holiness? It is the very definition of hypocrisy. It is pretending to be something you're not. One of the early church fathers, Cyril of Alexandria from Africa, he wrote that hypocrisy was a hateful malady toward God and humanity. It's because hypocrisy is a lie to God and men as these guys are parading around pretending to be holier than they are. Even worse, they mislead others by their terrible example as if they are true examples of holiness. 
And then Jesus goes on in verse 43 to rebuke the Pharisees for their love of the praise of men. Jesus' second woe convicts them of, of just uh, of pride because they love having the best seat in the house, which is in the synagogue or you know that where you sat is, is your social status. I mean, imagine if, if on Sunday uh, you know, we seated people according to how socially important they were. Right? Now, the church used to do this. This was especially in England early on. Uh, you would actually like purchase pews or sections of the church. It's how you, partly how you would support the work of the church. And so actually you'll read church history, um, I mean, in the 1800s where um, if the pastor got out of line, sometimes the patrons would lock the pews so that way nobody could sit in there. And so they, and so, um, and so, uh, when uh, there was um, Charles Simeon was known for this, he was preaching the gospel, and a bunch of his uh, congregants locked all the pews because he was preaching the gospel. They didn't like that he was preaching that they were sinners, and <laughs> they didn't want to hear that. They're nobles and lords, and like, how dare you tell us, you know, that we're sinners and that we need grace? And so, um, and so, uh, and so, there was records of just people just sitting in the floor, <laughs> in between the pews because all the pews were uh, locked up. So thankfully. I'm not exactly sure when that died out. Uh, that was, still was a thing even as it was brought over to America, but eventually, thankfully, that died out in the church. Uh, but but the, the idea of just, but in the synagogue, you would sit and you, where you sat would indicate how socially important you were. It was true at the dinner table as well. In the marketplace, when you were greeted, these were not just, hey, how you doing? It was, these were elaborate, very showy, ostentatious greetings to show how important you were. And just the Pharisees, they just... Love that stuff. Love it, love it, love it. And so Jesus goes after them. And this is a source of pride for the Pharisees. They love the praise of men. But we have to admit that the love for the praise of men is not, not something that has also died out. Right? We, you know, it's, it, the love for the praise of men is still something that's very, very strong. You see, and, and, and it's always a constant temptation in the pastoral ministry because you're standing in front of a bunch of people every Sunday. And you want people to like you. And you want people to, you know, to pat you on the back. You want people to... And so there's a temptation to love that and to supplement that for the praise of men. We see it all over the place. We see it in social media. We see it in Hollywood. But we see it also even in the church. And so these first two woes that Jesus gives, they strike at the very heart of what we can call the Pharisee religion. It is, it is following God in a way that focuses almost exclusively on the external and, and very much stands on ceremony. And when we look at the Pharisees, we must, also, we must always be careful not to dismiss them too quickly to say, aren't those guys terrible? They're the worst. Because for in the Pharisees, we must see the danger that they represent, that Phariseeism represents to the church today, especially not just for regular Christians, but especially for leaders in the Christian church. How easy it is for us to get caught up in prioritizing small and even unnecessary things as if they are commanded by God himself. You're like, I remember that church meeting, right? It's like where you, get, you see people get all wound up and get argue about something that you're like, it's not in here. Why are we so mad about this? Why are we so offended about this? Why are we so angry about this? Where, we, where the church is caught up on these small things and they neglect the harder things like loving one another, forgiving one another, sharing the grace of God with outsiders. How easy it is for pastors to fall in love with the title reverend 
to love how people uh, think well of you to the point where you begin to start thinking pretty well of yourself. How easy it is for officers in the church to start looking to their titles, to start believing that we're something special, something holier, something more approved of by God more than others. This is why one of the chief character traits of a leader in the church must be humility. Why the Apostle Paul warns us not to think of us as being more than we are. If we do not take this warning from Jesus seriously, especially as leaders in the church, then we are in danger of, at a certain point, deserving Jesus' rebuke because we will end up like the Pharisees. And, and this leads us to the, the, the final woe that Jesus gives to the Pharisees and the most uh, serious one that he gives to them, which is that they are misleading the people of God in their external religion in verse 44. Jesus says that when the Pharisees who are supposed to be clean from the inside out, when they who are supposed to be leading God's people in righteousness and justice and love for God, when they do that, when they are leading wrongly and sinfully, they are actually like unmarked graves that people don't even know they're walking over. That's, what, that's the point why he says unmarked, because you don't even know you're walking on a grave. Now, that would have been incredibly offensive to the Pharisees. And you find out later because the lawyer says, hey, if you're insulting them like that, that, that hits us too. Right? And so they call it an insult, what Jesus says here. Because the thing is, if you come into contact from Jewish ceremony, from Jewish even tradition, Jewish law, if you come into anything, in contact with anything that has to do with the dead, well, then you become ceremonially defiled. And guess what? A grave is about the worst thing to touch. Because that's where dead people are buried. And so, and so these guys who are obsessed with ritual purity, Jesus says that through their hypocrisy have become unseen vectors of defilement to everyone who follows them. Everyone who listens to them. And this highlights a serious truth and warning about leadership. That hypocrisy amongst leadership, even in the church, starting with the pastor and the elders and the deacons, hypocrisy spreads the defilement of the people, the congregation. Because as Bob Schwanebeck said in my ordination ceremony, as the officers go, so go the church. And so we must be wary of looking like we have the righteous life going on. I mean, I got it going on. I'm wearing a blazer, Right? So I must be right. Must beware of just doing all the things that signal that we're holy people. So that people will think we're special when really inside we are filled with unchecked sinful passions. Hypocrisy in the leadership usually expresses itself in the focus upon unimportant external details and rules. It obsesses over minor things and neglects the major things that God actually cares about. It focuses on behaviors and traditions and says very little about the justice of God and the love of God. And while this is true for all Christians, it is especially true for those of us who have been called into leadership in the church. To be vigilant that hypocrisy does not dominate our lives or our teaching. 
that we wouldn't seek out the applause and the honor of men and so become, as one, uh, one scholar pastor wrote, conduits of contamination, leading God's people astray, while at the same time thinking that we're actually righteous and good. I think the simplest way for us to do this, or at least a place to start, is to remember that God always looks to the heart. God knows the hearts of the elders and the deacons. He knows the hearts of every one of His people. He knows my sins and my failures. He knows the good work that the Spirit has done in me too. He knows it all. And He knows it about you. And secondly, we would do well to ask ourselves, if as the leadership in the church, are we concerned with the love of God? Are we concerned with the justice of God? And how does that come through in the way that we lead, in the way that we teach, in the way that we interact and lead the people of God? Because at the end of the day, the Pharisees would have done well to simply cry out to Jesus for the cleansing that comes only by the grace of God. And to their credit, some did. Not every Pharisee rejected Jesus, but most of them did. As leaders in the church, as Christians in the church, let us never forget that God always looks to the heart. He knows what is there. He knows whether or not it lines up with what, the way we live. And so let us cast off the temptations toward external religion and embrace a love for God that looks to the cross that His Son bore for our sin, that He would cleanse us from the inside out, cleanse us, from the pastor to the officers to every member of the church to cleanse us of the defilement of our souls and to make us pure and holy for his glorious purposes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not leave us to purify ourselves from the outside in, but that your grace comes to us In Jesus Christ, who has died on the cross for our hypocrisy, for our defilement, for the ways that we have focused at times on being externally religious because we wanted people to think we were holier than we are. We pray for any hypocrisy that we have that's rooted even in our character now. We pray that you would uproot it, that you would bring us to humility, that we would know who we are. Lord, but we truly know who we are when we look to the cross of Christ. We realize we are sinners saved by the grace and mercy of God. That we are not the righteous who make ourselves righteous. Or bad people who made ourselves good. But that we were rebels, sons of disobedience. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But that God, our Father, has made us alive by His Son, Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, according to Your great love, and You've made us alive in Your Son. You've cleansed us and made us pure and holy, called us to Yourself to serve and follow You. And so, Father, we pray that we would embrace that bold humility that only comes in the grace of the Gospel. That we would not think of ourselves more than what we are as sinners saved by grace, but that we would not think of ourselves as less than that which we are, which are saints, made so by the grace of God, a grace that can never be taken from us. And Lord, may you lead us 
that we may walk in humility and faithfulness and holiness, growing in your grace, and that we may not take on the religion of Pharisees, but that we may follow our Lord in his way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.